Good morning, beloved. Oh, y'all can do better than that. Good morning, beloved. Amen. It's good to be with you together this morning. Just enjoying our singing this morning. We praise God for the praise team and the encouragement through song this morning. Amen. And the, the readings and the prayer. Uh, and to, to look out and to see some some OG ARC family. Uh, so we see the Fagbuis back there. I mean, some of you remember Daniel and Aaron Fagbui and the little ones there. Uh, coming through town, they were they were just a married couple. Uh, when we started ARC, they done multiplied, and uh, and and not only were they part of the the original membership of the church, but a few years ago moved off to Missouri, Missouri, uh, where they're ministering and serving now. We're glad to have you guys with us this Thanksgiving. We, anybody else sneak in here on us that I didn't see? Uh, amen. Well, good to be together this morning. Before we give our attention to God's word in First Peter chapter one, you can go ahead and turn there. If you like, before we do that, we got to do our homework assignment. Yeah, we got to do our homework assignment. Last week, we were in verses 17 to 19. And so we've been memorizing this letter, uh, hiding God's word in our hearts. And so I wonder if there's someone who would volunteer to recite for us 1 Peter 1, verses 17 to 19, or the entirety of 1 Peter up to this point. Does anybody want to recite God's word for us? Amos, do you have your hand up in the hall? No, no, okay. Right. You just holding your phone. All right. All right. Anybody? Okay. Well, we're shaking off the the L tryptophan from the turkey, and uh, we get back into it. So, so next time we'll have verses seventeen to twenty-one then as our homework assignment, and um, the entire of the chapter. Amen. Ooh, that was so non-committal. Amen, amen. So next time, we'll have 17 to 21, amen? Amen, praise be to God. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll give our attention to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we have been singing your praises, offering our prayers, greeting one another. So thus far in our conversation with you, we've been doing all the talking. We pray now that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear, faith to believe, that you would give us wisdom from your word and hope from your word. We pray that you would stir us up to faith and to love and to good deeds. We pray that you would make us confident of your plans for us and sure of your presence with us. So we pray, Father, come now, speak to us in great power. Open our hearts, open our minds. Give us, Lord, heavenly things to treasure. And give us a hope, Lord, that carry us beyond this life. Speak to us, Lord, your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are working our way very slowly through the book of First Peter. It's a sermon series that we have called Holiness in a Hostile World. But that's really, in some sense, what Peter is talking about. He's talking to a group of Christians spread throughout Asia. Uh, you see that back up in chapter 1, verse 1, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he describes these Christians as elect exiles. Elect means they're chosen. They're chosen by God, but they are exiles. They are displaced. They are homeless. They are roaming the world, as it were, without a place to lay their heads. They are not at home in this world, but have a home in the world to come, the world that Christ himself has prepared for us. And so the question sort of hanging over this letter is, how then should these people live? How should we live? How should Christians live? We are the elect exiles that Peter is writing to. How do we navigate this world that is so often hostile to God and hostile to those who believe in him, that is so often hostile to faith and righteousness? How do we live as the people of God? Well, if you were to sort of answer that question with one word from the book of Peter, there are lots of candidates uh, for a good one-word answer, but one word that we could use is holiness, that we should live holy. You see that looking back at verses 16 and 17 and 18, where uh, the Apostle Peter says there that we should be holy because God is holy. 
that we should conduct ourselves in holiness. And he sort of turned that diamond just a little bit for us in verses 17 to 19 and said we should live, we should conduct ourselves in reverence here with a respectful awe of God. That holiness and reverence are twins, are cousins, joined together and help to define what the Christian life should be even in a hostile world, even when we are elect exiles. Well, last week we were also meditating on the fact that um, we are, if we are Christians, we have God as our Father, a perfect Father, a heavenly Father. And there's some things that are true about Him, right? That we can call on Him as our Father, that He is available to us, that He's impartial, right? He doesn't have favorites among His children, that if you're God's child, you are God's child, and you are wonderfully loved. And that even though he's our father, he still impartially judges us. He holds us accountable. Not, not a kind of fearful judgment as, we will be, as if we will be condemned and thrown away, but the same way that a loving dad corrects his children, so our father corrects us. And that's part of what should drive us to live with a reverent uh, fear of God, with a re- respect of God. We have a God who is a father to us, who is available, who is listening, who is impartial, who loves us uniquely, judges each of us according to our deeds, who who fathers us specifically and intentionally. In our text this morning, we are still thinking about God our Father, and we're still thinking about what he's like to us as a father and how we ought to live before him, with him as our father. Uh, and, And one of the things we learn about God from this text is that God as our Father has plans for us. Christy and I love to spend time with young expecting parents because they're just brimming with plans. Right? They, they know where the baby's going to go to preschool. They got the college picked out. They've decided what the child is going to be like and ain't going to be like, ain't going to be like your kids. They're going to be better. Right? You know, they're just filled with plans. It just seems to be a natural part of parenthood, doesn't it? The moment we know that this life is going to be entrusted to us, we begin to lay down ideas for what that life is like. Well, in our text this morning, we learn that the Father has plans for us. And, and our main point, if you're taking notes this morning, is God planned our salvation through Jesus Christ so we would believe and hope in God. He's planned our salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ, and One of the purposes for that is that we would have hope. We would have hope. And this is the other way, along with holiness, that elect exiles are living in a hostile world. We live in hope. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1 for context. I'll start reading in verse 13, uh, but we'll settle on verses 20 and 21 for our text this morning. This is God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Our first point this morning is God planned our salvation through Jesus Christ. And you can see in verses 20 and 21 sort of four aspects or maybe four phases of this plan. First of all, the father foreknew the son before the foundation of the world. Now, foreknown doesn't mean simply he knew beforehand. 
It carries with it the idea that he, he chose beforehand, right, that he ordained beforehand. We see that same word back up in verses 1 and 2 when Peter describes us as elect exiles. The first thing he says is um, that we were uh, according to the foreknowledge of God, that God had foreknown us. He had foreloved us. He had forechosen us. He had foreordained us to this election, to this life as Christians. That same word here now is being used of Jesus. God, before the worlds began, chose, ordained, set Jesus apart for a particular role. He gave the Lord an assignment. Notice this is before the worlds began. Before there was anything, anywhere, anytime, or anybody, God put his plan in motion. He set his son aside with an assignment to be our redeemer, to be our savior. Uh, the apostles have understood this from the days of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, in the very first sermon, that's recorded, the Apostle Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches to the uh, Jews from all around the sort of world who were in Jerusalem on that day. And this is part of what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, and here's our word, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter's standing there fresh in the aftermath of the crucifixion and resurrection, standing there in the midst of the Holy Spirit, coming upon the church for the first time, and God really doing something tremendous and unique in salvation history. Peter stands there and interprets all of this in the light of God's foreknowledge, of God's prior plan to send his son to redeem his people. Now, why is it important that God foreknew Jesus before the world began? as we've been saying. It means he's had a plan even before the world existed. It shows us that the world is operating according to his own sovereign purposes. That the world is not spinning out of control. Your life is not spinning out of control. It may feel that way. right? And things may be chaotic and, and, and actually chaotic. And things may be quite hard. But in point of fact, there is a God who sits in heaven who rules all things. There's a God who has already written history before it happens. There's a God who has laid a plan before the world began, before you and I were specks in our parents' eyes. There was a God who purposed that his son would be our redeemer. God is fully in control. Time and space have not defeated or changed God's purposes in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Christ's torture and crucifixion was not a terrible thing that happened to a good man. The cross was God's idea before there were men and women. Before anything had been done by anybody, God the Father appointed God the Son to be the Redeemer of the world. Matthew Henry puts it this way, God had purposes of special favor toward his people long before he made any manifestations of grace to them. Before you even recognize and experience grace from God, God already had a plan for you. He's way ahead of us, beloved. He's way ahead of us. Declaring the plans before time before the worlds were founded. That's the first phase of his plan. Notice number two, second part of his, fan, his plan. Then the father manifested the son in the last time. You see that in, the, in verse 20? Was made manifest in the last time. Now, if the first part of verse 20 tells us about God choosing or ordaining Jesus before there was even time, this part now takes us then to the end of time. Right? You see how, how God's plan is spanning the whole of, of existence from eternity past to the last time, and we'll see in a moment, to eternity future, right? So in other words, there's no time that will ever happen that is not included in God's plan for us. God has seen it all. Now, according to the Bible, the last time is the period we are living in now. Jesus' incarnation 
when he came in human flesh, was when the last times began. When Jesus returns in the second coming, again, in a glorified body to gather his church, that will be the end of the last time. So we are living between the incarnation and the return. And that whole period, the New Testament authors, the Bible sees as the last times. This is when we're living, right? This is, this is the time, and it's also included in the middle of God's plans. And it all, notice, centers on Jesus. He was foreknown, and now he's been manifested in the last times. Jesus is unlike anyone ever. He is Alpha and Omega. He has no birthday, yet he was born. He was killed and died and buried, but three days later they had to invalidate the autopsy and the death certificate because of the resurrection. He has no beginning or no end. He always is. He is the pre-existing and always existing one, the eternal I am, and he is the center of God's plan to save the universe in these last times. There's nobody like him. Notice the verb in verse 20 there. He was made manifest. It's passive. Right? So this is, when you have a passive verb, a little English lesson here, geek out, that's all I know about English. When you have a passive verb, it, it means that the, the subject of the sentence is not the actor, but it's being acted on. Right? So it says, he was made manifest. So Jesus didn't make himself manifest, God manifested him. God was the one who made him manifest. And what does that mean, made him manifest? Well, I know some of y'all are into manifesting these days. Y'all out there practicing witchcraft and whatnot, y'all need to stop that. Stop that. It ain't that kind of manifesting. The idea here is, is not that even sort of magically Jesus appeared out of nowhere. The idea here is always been with us, but we couldn't see him. And so he's been kind of unveiled. He's been revealed. In that sense, he has been manifested to us. He has always been Emmanuel, God with us, but he's not always been cloaked in our flesh. And so in the incarnation, God made the invisible God visible. He made the invisible Redeemer seeable with the human eyes. In the last time, Christ stepped out of eternity past, stepped out of simply a a spiritual existence, and stepped into our flesh. And we might behold him. And we might see him. We might touch him. And we might hear his voice unmistakably. And that he might carry our flesh to the cross, that it might atone for our sins in his death, that it might be resurrected in a literal body and glorified in that body, that he might redeem us body and soul through his own life, death, and resurrection. God has made him visible, seeable. The invisible son became the visible savior in human flesh. Of course, in making Jesus manifest, the Father was also making himself manifest. So think with me or turn with me to John chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. Pastor Tim read, uh, or Pastor Dennis read, verse 1 is our call to worship. Just a few verses later, John chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. This is Jesus in conversation with his disciples. He said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 6 and verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the He was known in the beginning and shown in the end. And he reveals not only himself, but he reveals to us what God is like. Beloved, if you're here and you've been considering the the teachings of Christianity and wondering what it is about Christ that so captures our hearts and our attention, uh, or or maybe you've been here trying to sort of think about how how can I know what God is like? The, the, The clearest, simple answer to that is to look at Jesus. He is the one who reveals the Father to us. To look at him, to see him, to consider his life is to look at God. It is to see the Father. It is to know what God is like. 
And so we just encourage you to stay on that journey of considering who Jesus is because that's going to be the window into who God is. When you look on him, you'll be looking on God. For God made him manifest, and he manifested God to us in these last times. So that was stage two of God's plan. Stage three is in verse 21. Notice now, God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the third great act. In salvation, according to this passage of Scripture, Jesus was not only manifested in the flesh, but he sacrificed himself to death on a Roman cross. He died and was buried in a tomb. But three days later now, God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, beloved, this ain't just something Christians believe. This is actual, literal, historical fact. So now the the Bible here is rooting us not only in God's plans and eternity, but it's rooting us in actual history. It's rooting us in the actual actions of God in space and time among humanity. This is a literal historical fact so important, so important, that it became the central confession of the first Christians. That the most central thing that you can confess as a Christian in the first century, the time of Peter, and it continues to be the most central thing that you can confess as a Christian is that God raised Jesus from the dead. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? In other words, there's like no escape from God's judgment apart from belief in the fact that Jesus is Lord and was resurrected for our salvation. Reject the resurrection, you reject God's salvation. Reject the resurrection, you, you reject the God who died for you and rose for you to give you new and eternal life and to atone for your sins. This is at the heart of Christianity. Lose this, you lose the gospel, you lose the church, you lose everything the Bible's talking about. But not only is this a central confession, the resurrection was so central a fact that the early apostles, the Christians, the early Christian leaders said that if the resurrection is not true, then Christianity is rubbish. It's trash. It's it's garbage. And and Christians are fools, right? So this this is something, the the centrality of the resurrection is something that the earliest Christians faced head on. It looked squarely at. So they weren't retreating to, well, I just believe this and you believe that. They were saying, no, no, no. This is so important that if it's false, I'm stupid. This is so important that if it's false, I'm to be pitied. I'm foolish. So look at me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 and 22. That chapter might be the longest meditation on the resurrection in the Bible. And so the Apostle Paul there writes this, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So see right there, in, with, among the earliest Christians in the, in the church, there were people who were wanting to deny this. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20 and 21. So he considers all of those claims. He considers the claim that if Christ has not been raised, then Preaching is in vain. Faith is in vain. People have died in vain. We are still in our sins. We're headed toward judgment. And then he turns the screw in verse 21. But in fact, see, in fact, not not according to just empty belief, but in fact, in reality, in history, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
by a man come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is what keeps us from being foolish as Christians. If Jesus didn't get up, sleep in, watch football, go play basketball on Sunday, do whatever you want to do, it's a wrap. But if he is raised, if he is alive, if he got up from the grave, that changes everything. That changes everything, right? That means there is a God who raised him. That means there is a life beyond this one. That means there is a salvation to be gained. That means there is a Lord to be obeyed. That means, beloved, that we owe everything to the one who died for us and rose again, and we must live for him now in the power and truth of the resurrection. Nothing, nothing is more life-altering, world-altering, than this fact that he got up, that he got up from the grave and lives now in glory and in power. Death is defeated. Eternal life is ours. And the last thing that God does in his plan is related to the resurrection and related to Jesus' suffering on the cross for us. Notice there in verse 21, he not only raised him, but he gave him glory. He gave him glory. For his righteousness and his sacrifice, God the Father looked at his son and said, let me put you on a platform. Let me exalt you. Let me make your name great. Let me make your name to be reverenced and feared and adored and loved and worshipped. Let me, let, me, let me give you your shine. Because in your shine, I get my shine too. The father, the father's like a lot of us dads. We've got sons who are good athletes. You know, daughters who are amazing singers or amazing athletes, too. And we go to the game, and, and they're doing what they do on the pitch or the field or the, or the court or on the, on the track. And, and when they are, are bursting in their glory, we stand up. That's my boy. That's my boy right there. That's my daughter. That's my girl right there. When they are singing soprano in school play or playing the cello or the violin in their recital, you know, we beam with that pride. And we said, that, that, one, that one right there, that one's mine. So, so the father looks at his son and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. From his baptism to his transfiguration and all day, every day in glory, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Glorify him. Show him his praise. And again, the, the, the first century Christians have understood this from day one. Again, when Peter preaches that first sermon in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 31 and 33, this is what he says. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, speaking of David and the Psalms, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So that's the place of honor and glory. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, to you, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Paul got the same thing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. In this very letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, Peter referring to Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. God gave the Son glory for accomplishing the plan of our redemption. Now, as we think about this, these couple of verses in 1 Peter and this sort of four-part description of God's plan, he foreknew the Son, he made manifest the Son, he resurrected the Son or raised the Son, and he glorified the Son. 
I want to suggest maybe two applications. One is a minor application. It's just something that I was thinking that struck me as I was preparing a sermon and thinking about what's said here. I mean, this, this sentence, again, goes from eternity past. It knows the mind of God before the world began. Comes all the way down into the last times and all the way into the, the glorification of Christ. And, and this question hit me. How did a first century fisherman know this stuff? I mean, Peter is this rough-hewn fisherman, used to casting nets and dragging in fish. He's apparently a guy that's maybe a little quick-tempered, things of this sort. When they were preaching uh, in the early chapters of Acts and the Jewish leaders with all of their fancy robes and big degrees, they disdained Peter and the rest of the boys by saying, these are uneducated men. How did a first century fisherman know this? Except that God revealed it to him. And so in this, in this kind of truth, more elegant uh, and sophisticated, more coherent um, than, than any sort of philosophy you're going to learn in ivory tower, um, you know, what, what do they call them schools, those fancy schools? Ivy League schools. See, I didn't go to one. I went to a public institution. So those, those Ivy League, you know, ivory tower things, man. Philosophers are in those towers losing their minds, trying to figure out if the chair you sit on really exists. If you really exist. And Peter is explaining the purpose of the universe. For me, it, it's one of those realizations that make me go, yeah, I can trust the Bible. I can trust the Bible. This is, this is true. This is right. This is good. This, this is so elegant, given to such an unsophisticated man. It must have been God speaking to him. I contradict myself between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. It won't really take that long, right? Yet Peter is explaining to us, again, the mysteries of the universe. For me, it was just a, is a testimony to the truthfulness of, of Scripture and the, and the stunning beauty of Scripture and the majesty of God in, in putting in the mouth of a fisherman such beautiful things. Here's the second application. This is more uh, uh, pointed to the text. Is what does this teach us about God? Well, it teach us, teaches us that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. Some of you will know that little opening line in evangelistic presentations. God loves you and has a wonderful plan in your life. It's become a little bit of a cliche and a joke in many Christian circles, but this text tells us it's true. <laughs> and his plan began before our lives did. His love for us began before our lives did. Before we were formed as our father, God was laying plans for us when we would be born, where we would be born, which human parents he would temporarily entrust us to, what school we would be in, not just the, the actual preschools and grade schools, but the, the school of life, where we would learn from suffering, where we would learn from hardship, where we would learn from blessing. He was teaching us and guiding us and leading us until we would come back to him, his true father, to be his forever. This text teaches us that God is a planner. He's in control. That he redeems the lost. That his reach is infinite. That he loves us. And he's glorified in his son when we believe in him. You know, one of the things that Christians often sort of try to, they struggle with to try to figure out is, you know, how can I glorify God with my life? Simple answer. Believe in his son. God gets more glory out of our trusting his son than he does in a thousand sacrifices offered in our strength. That he has bound up his own glory with the glory of his son in the resurrection and the crucifixion. And we trust in that. We not only glorify him, but we get a share in that glory when he comes. And so, beloved, I don't know what you think about God this morning. I don't know if you think God has forgotten you. He remembered you before you were you. 
I don't know if you think your life is out of control and the world is out of control. It's not. It's raggedy. Earth is ratchet. Right? There's a lot that's broken. But God is steadily orchestrating events for the redemption of mankind. That includes you, beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. He has laid this plan down to recover you. He loved you from before the world began. Love him in return. Put your faith in Christ. Be made new. Be made whole. For that's been God's plan for you all along. Not the brokenness. Not the bruise. Not the trauma. Not the guilt. Not the grief. But salvation. And joy. And love. And eternal life. And you might not experience those things fully in this life. But in the life to come. That's all you will experience. It's a good character. Trust in Christ. So God has a plan to save the world through his son. So that, point number two, and more quickly, our hope would be in God. So that you and I would have hope in God. Now, notice what Peter says in verse 20. That all that God is doing here in foreknowing Jesus before the world began and making him manifest was, notice that little phrase, for your sake. Oh, gosh. That's so beautiful. For your sake. You're sitting here as a human being made in God's image. God has done all of this for you. For your blessing. For your benefit. For your sake. See, in the gospel, God is kind of like the poster of Uncle Sam pointing out into the world, saying, I want you. Right? Now, he's not dressed in red, white, and blue. Don't get it twisted. He's not an American God. He's God of all gods, right? And he is pointing from eternity past in the gospel through the preaching of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected. I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. He's calling you to come to himself. He's, he's pointing a loving finger right into your heart, right into your chest, saying, no, 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 I mean you. Not the one next to you, but you. You are mine. I will have you. And to prove it, I send my son into the world for you, to die for you. So there's a sense in which, not in an ultimate sense, but in a penultimate sense, sort of a, a secondary sense, there's a sense in which everything God is doing in the world, he's doing for us. Now, again, we don't want to make too much of that in the sense that we put ourselves in the middle of the universe and, and we get kind of proud spiritually and religiously. That leads to some other problems, right? No, no, no. But having said that, having said that Jesus is the center of the universe and, and that God's plan is for his own glory, having said that, it is also true that it is for our sake. It is for our blessing. So, beloved, if you're here this morning and you've become used to thinking that God is unconcerned with you, I just want you to know that's a lie. It's not true. If you, be, if you become used to thinking that God doesn't notice you and, and, and God doesn't think of you and God doesn't answer your play, prayers and God doesn't have a purpose for you and, and your life is just aimless and, and maybe a little cold and, and, and you've gotten numb to that, I want you to know that belief in that is wrong. It is factually inaccurate. And, 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 and one of the most significant things that, that if that's us, we need to do for our own well-being and for our flourishing as God intends is simply to recognize that God actually acts for our sake, for our blessing. That's what makes a text like Romans 8.28 so marvelously true, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Not that everything that happens to us is good, but God is working in it and working it together with other things for our sake, for our good, and for his glory. Isn't it a wonderful thing that, that God's glory and our sake go together? But one of the lies of the devil is to sort of suggest to us that God's glory only happens at our detriment. 
we can't have this. We can't do that. God doesn't want this. That's how he's glorified. No, 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 no. This text says that God has, glorifies his son, and he glorifies his son in such a way as is also at the same time for our sake, for our blessing, for our benefit. The tempter has so many lies. He whispers so many deceits. Believe none of them. Believe the world. Believe God. So God is acting for our sake. And notice now, he's acting for our sake. He describes us there as as those who are believers in God. So he's acting for our sake so that we might come to believe in God. And so that, notice the end of verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, I think Peter here is thinking about faith and hope as kind of uh, Siamese twins or uh, as synonyms, I think he's thinking about faith and hope in, in sort of two aspects. The first reference to believers in God, I think he has in view that faith that brings us into salvation initially. All right? that, that Jesus has been given up on the cross, been raised from the grave, and been given glory so that we might be brought to saving faith. But then in that second reference to faith and hope, at the end of the verse, verse 21, I think he's not thinking so much about that initial saving faith. I think he's thinking about sort of walking by faith, living by faith, living in hope. And in chapter 1, verse 3, you'll recall that Peter says of us that God has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? His whole purpose has been that we might be born again, we might have new birth through faith in Christ, and with that new birth, we might have this living hope. In other words, beloved, hope is your new birthright. It's yours by virtue of the fact that you've been born again. And we are meant to live in it. We are meant to live by it, by this faith and this hope. Hope, of course, is confidence in it. Faith is trust. Hope is confidence. It's a confidence in God. Right? It's a confidence in the promises of God. Right? It's, it's evidence of things not seen. Right? So, so faith and hope are its own kind of evidence, its own kind of argument that the things that God has said are real and are true. And, and that hope in God is not disappointed. The, the faith and the hope that he's talking about here in verse 21 is not confidence in money or power or government or armies or marriage or children or career. Those are idols if they take the place of God. And they might inspire some kind of hope temporarily in limited things, but they are not the kind of things that should give you hope that you're going to live forever with God. They have a shelf life. They are limited. But this hope in God endures forever. It produces forever. It never fails. And God's entire plan is to free us from the functional idols that seduce us to trust those idols rather than God. Verse 21 reminds the readers again that the, the holy life to which we have been called is a life in which we are trusting God's promises. A life of holiness is one in which God is prized above all things, in which believers trust and hope in his goodness. So as we conclude, let's just meditate for a couple minutes more on this notion of hope. And what I want to say to you is, hope is a discipline. It's a practice like so many other Christian practices. Walking by faith is a discipline. It's not like you sort of get hope one day and then it just lasts all the time and you never have to work on hope. No, no, we, we have to hope and hope again. We have to do as the psalmist does in, in the psalm, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, when he kind of figuratively speaking grabs himself by the collar and says, why are you downcast, O my soul, hope in God? That's the chorus in those couple of psalms there. He's struggling with hope. He's, he's just keep grabbing himself saying, hope in God, hope in God. Why are you downcast? Lift up your head. Hope in God. God's not dead. He's alive. Place your confidence in him. And so we have to practice walking by hope. I think God has given us a natural picture of what that looks like. And some of you are raising toddlers right now. 
have raised toddlers, or you got grandbabies who are toddlers, or nieces and nephews who are toddlers who are just learning to, we call it cruise, right? To pull themselves up by the coffee table, kind of stand by the coffee table, and they kind of work on their vertical a little bit, they bounce, you know, and they start cruising along the table, right? And then eventually they, they get daring enough to get one hand off the table and to try that thing called walking, and what's the first thing they do? Half step, boom, go down, right? You know what we've never seen parents do? Tyler gets out there, boom, he face plants, he falls, he falls back, he's rolling around. You know, you know what you've never seen a parent do? Walk up and say, see, you got that from your mother's side of the family. You can't do nothing. You can't even walk, right? We, we don't do that, right? The baby just really got a carpet burn, fell on his head, right? And, and we pick the baby, oh, you're walking, and we start cheering, and we start clapping. We're like, take another step, take another step. How much more our Father in heaven in our fleeting, Altering steps in hope. So, oh, I saw you. You almost hope. Get, get up again. Hope again. Believe again. Trust again. Have confidence. I'm, I'm right here. It just keeps picking us up over and over and helping us practice the discipline of hope until it becomes a life of hope. Now, many of us have been taught by disappointment instead of hope. Disappointment has become our homeroom teacher. And here's what I want us to understand if that's us. If we find our hearts are, are more habituated to disappointment than hope, that to be truly alive, a person has to hope. And hope is so much a part of being truly alive that hopelessness is a kind of death. When we are hopeless, we draw back from life, don't we? We don't allow ourselves to dream. We find ways to be small in the world, unseen. I mean, we, we press a pillow on the face of ambition until it suffocates when we're hopeless. We see the risk of hope, and we run like scared children when we're hopeless. And it's all because we don't want to be disappointed. Of course, there's no way to live by faith and to hope in God that minimizes risk, is there? We can't use a layaway plan for hope. A little bit down here, a little bit down later, and then hope that all of a sudden we're going to be people filled with hope. That's not hope. It may be a number of things. It may be fear. It may be cowardice. It may be hurt. It's not hope. See, hope throws itself fully into the arms of God as our Father who has a plan for us. Hope defies our circumstances. And we may be exiles, but we have also been born again to this living hope through the resurrection. So no matter our social position in this life, as born-again people, hope again is our new birthright. And it's good for this life and the life to come. So we need to learn to go ahead and hope again. Some of us have um, clicked into our brother John O and the We Go On Tour, uh, thinking about grief and things of that sort. He's got a little line that comes out of that that, that I like, where he says it's, it's not grief, right, uh, that, that threatens us or undoes us, et cetera, but it's hopelessness, right? That the real problem beneath grief is this struggle with hope. And beloved, I think that's true not just when it comes to grief. I think that's true in a lot of things, that the sort of sin beneath the sin is faithlessness and hopelessness. So we could be talking about grief. We could be talking about career aspirations. We could be talking about working through difficulties in marriage. We could be talking about persevering with a wandering child. We could be talking about trying to make a difference in our neighborhood, that the real sin beneath the sin, the temptation that lies beneath all the other temptations is a temptation to hopelessness and faithlessness and despair. I think it's how John's thing is not grief that ruins us, but hopelessness, right? So, so hopelessness is a neighbor next door to ruin. And if we keep visiting hopelessness, sooner or later, they'll walk us next door to the neighbor ruin, and we'll sit in that house too. And we just need to be a whole other street culture. Right? We need to be on a whole other neighborhood, a whole other subdivision called hope and faith. 
And we need to understand that disappointment is not the worst thing in the world. We need to learn to trust God enough to also trust him to help us handle our disappointment. Right? Disappointment will come in almost every endeavor of our lives. And so if we are afraid of disappointment, we won't live outwardly. We won't live big. We'll live small and scared. But hope just pushes us out of that. Uh, Trust in God brings us up out of that so that we can hope in God for things and and declare that hope in God to to God and and to others and, and be outward and give energy to it and pursue it. And then we discover that we are alive. Nothing makes us more alive than pursuing the dreams and visions and purposes that God has given us. And nothing quite smothers us like drawing back from it in hopelessness. So Peter is saying to us, God is saying to us through Peter, just as he said to these exiles in the first century world, I'm your father. I have plans for you. Hope in you. I got you. It's going to be all right. Hope in me. I won't disappoint you. Even if I don't give you everything or anything that you hope for, hoping in me is worth it. Because the things I've prepared for you are actually far better than the things that you're dreaming of for yourself. I've laid a plan that began before the world, Stephen. And I sent my son at exactly the right time might know me, and in knowing me, have hope. Beloved, practice hope this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us from your word. We thank you for what you gave the Apostle Peter and what you have now given to your church. We pray, O Lord, that you would indeed give us grace to remember that you are our Father who has a plan for us and to trust you to hope in you, having sacrificed your son for us, how will you not also along with him give us all good things? So Lord, we pray, build in us a confidence in you, uh, uh, an unshakable reliance in you, that you are a good God, a good father who does good things for his children. You give good gifts and you add no sorrow. So help us, O Lord, to live by faith, Lord expressing, Lord, trust in you, and to live with hope, expressing confidence in you for things small and things great. Help us to repent from shrinking back into an increasingly lifeless, smaller box. Help us to push out, Lord, to live out, live forward, knowing that you've prepared a place for us and you are coming again to gather us into that place and all of our disappointments will evaporate, Lord, will evaporate in your presence, in glory, when we're home together with you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you give someone faith this morning, knowing that Jesus has died for them and rose again, that they put their faith in him and begin to live this eternal life that you give. And we pray this morning that you give your church hope, that we would abound in hope for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.